0: This evening is the completion of a series of twelve talks or teachings that we began to work with in February um, called What the Buddha Taught. And during this series of teachings we went through the practices of the foundations of mindfulness and the Eightfold Path and the establishment of the Brahma Viharas of the discovery of our own innate compassion and loving-kindness and equanimity um, and the qualities of the awakened heart. And usually these talks have been about how to understand these teachings and apply them in our life. Tonight, as the closure to this series of 12 talks, I'd like to use a Buddhist text and go through it. don't usually use the texts in a very formal way, Um, And this is not so much in order to learn this particular sutra or text, but to listen to it and see if we can hear within it um, something that has meaning to our own lives and our own practice. So this last of these twelve teachings is uh, the Buddha's last teachings. And there is then in the uh, discourses of the Buddha that are collected, um, one of the great or long discourses entitled The Buddha's Last Days. And one can listen to it in a certain way as history. That is, it describes a year in the life of the Buddha 2,500 years ago in India. Or we can listen to it as myth, and in fact as one part of one of the greatest myths that are the um, treasure of the human race, the myth or the story of the Buddha, like the myth or the story of Jesus or other great beings, is one that's inspired billions and billions of human beings over thousands of years. The way we can know that this is in part a myth and you'll understand how to work with a myth as I speak about it is from the very beginning it starts with a quality of mythological language. Thus I have heard it begins like once upon a time long ago when the Blessed One was staying in Rajgir on the mountain called Vulture's Peak. And it ends in the same spirit Um, the last line of it is and that is how it was in the old days 50 pages in between which tells the story so it begins on Vulture's Peak across the vast plains of North India there were at that time great forests with ancient trees and tigers and other wild creatures it has now become deforested in fact the area of Bihar the province of Bihar, where the tree of enlightenment of the Buddha's awakening is one of overtilled soils and the poorest area of India. But in that time, along the Ganges River Valley, it was one uh, great forest and plain of great richness. Now, as this story begins, the Blessed One, as it says, or the Buddha is sitting on Vulture's Peak, and it begins with two major themes how he should leave and give instructions to those around him, the community, as guidance to their practice and their path of awakening. And secondly, he speaks of the wise relationships that are necessary to continue the existence of spiritual community. And it does all of this by setting up the image of a kingdom Of a kingdom of justice, of compassion, of respect for all beings. So the opening scene is the vulture's peak and the Buddha surrounded by monks. And then there is a visit by the chief minister of the king of Magadha, who comes up and bows his head to the Blessed One and says, My king, the king of Magadha, has sent me to ask the Blessed One a question. Should we make war on our neighbors, the Vajjians, who have been very difficult to us, or should we not? And he will listen to the advice of the Buddha very carefully. So the Buddha listens to this question, sits quietly, and then responds. He said to the minister, My friend, as long as the Vajjians in their kingdom meet in harmony and break up in harmony, and carry on in harmony, thus will their kingdom survive. Do they meet in harmony? Do they follow the teachings of the elders? Do they honor and revere and salute the wise ones among them? Do they take care of those who are the weaker members of their society, the wives and daughters and others? Do they honor and revere and respect the shrines and the environment of nature within which they live? Do they come together with respect for one another and depart in respect for one another? If they do, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. And then the Buddha turns to the monks around him and he says, thus it will be with our own community when we come together if we do so regularly and frequently and listen to one another with respect if we establish a harmony in meeting and in breaking up, if we follow the trainings and teachings of the elders and the wise among us, if we do not fall prey to our own individual desires but practice and preserve a personal mindfulness with modesty and care, if we bring loving kindness to the companions with whom we live, then the community of the followers of the way, the followers of the Buddha can also be expected to prosper and not decline so this was his answer to the minister as long as a society which includes our own society honors its elders cares for its weakest members respects and cares for the environment and that which is sacred around us comes together in harmony and with respect for all members of the society and separates in harmony, so long can it be expected to prosper and not decline. Raises some questions for us, doesn't it, in the society? Of what? And the Buddha isn't saying what people should or shouldn't do. He's simply describing the law of society in human nature for us to take into our hearts and consider. Now, as I recite or speak of the teachings in this text there are questions that it raises why did the Buddha not turn to the minister from the king of Magda and say war is bad there should be no more wars war is a terrible thing it causes great suffering simply tell your king no more wars why do you think as you hear this myth or story that it's not put in such absolute terms anyone have an idea yes in the back If you have a directive like that, it doesn't teach real wisdom. Thank you. That's one way of understanding it, which is to say the Buddha didn't make it black and white and ideal. The world should no longer have any more war. Instead, he understood that we needed to look into human nature and see what were the causes of war. The wise man, said the Buddha, or the wise woman, looks not at the effects of things, but at their root causes. And so in this case, if there is justice and respect and care and compassion, then there will not be war. And if there isn't, then there are conditions that bring us to war. It's a way of learning about the conditions that create freedom and joy or happiness in human relations and those which create sorrow. So the gist of the rest of the sutta is about the travels of the Buddha the announcement of his death, the last disciples, the last teachings, what to keep in mind as one would follow these teachings, the last meal, and what happened as the Buddha uh, died and the stupa and remains. Again, there's a great sense of its mythological quality because the next scene takes place near Nalanda at Pavarika's Mango Grove. And there is the Buddha seated with Sariputra, his chief disciple. And Sariputra is sitting there with the Buddha and he says to the Buddha, "Oh Buddha, the Buddha says, yes, Sariputra. He said, never could there be a better, more enlightened teacher than the Buddha. And the Buddha looks back at Sariputra and he says, and how do you know this Sariputra? Do you know all the Buddhas of the past worlds? And Sariputra said, no. Then do you know all the Buddhas of the coming worlds? And Sariputra says, no. And then he said, then perhaps you know all that is in the mind of the Buddha before you. And Sariputra says, no, sir. As a matter of fact, I don't. Uh Then how can you make such a statement, Sariputra? And Sariputra answers in a mythological way. He says to the Buddha, imagine, if you will, a great city, a huge city with a mighty wall all around it. And this wall is so well made that there isn't even a hole as big as a cat could get through. And at the center of this city, there is one single gate that enters the wall, the the entrance to the city. No other way to get in. And at this gate, there is a skilled gatekeeper who knows who should come into the city and who should leave the city and sees all that arises and passes. This is the gate of the presence of mind of awareness or wakefulness that sees all that will be and all that has been, because it rests in the reality of this present moment, of the eternal present. And then Sariputra turns to the Buddha and says, Thus I understand that all enlightened beings rest in the reality of this present Buddha present moment, that the abode of the Buddhas, the abode of the awakened heart is this eternal present and it is the abode of mindfulness of being aware without grasping or resisting but seeing things in this moment for what they are with wisdom and compassion and the Buddha said thus it is so, Sariputra in fact this is the resting place of the Buddhas. it's like the poet Rumi who says, what is this fuss we make when we will go one by one, through the same gate. So it's an invitation to rest in your own Buddha nature in the present. And after this dialogue with Sariputra at Pavarika's Mango Grove, then the Buddha and a retinue of followers walk for a time and they come to the Ganges River. And there, wandering with the company and retinue, the Buddha answers the question that is posed to him, what is a wise relation to all the teachings the Buddha has given over 45 years? And in this famous dialogue, the Buddha says, do you see how broad the Ganges is and how those who wish to cross this flooded river bed make a raft and use that raft to take them from this shore to the other? In such a way, one should use the teachings of the awakened ones, one should use the practices, to carry you from the place of entanglement or fear or confusion across the river to that place of liberation or freedom. But then, my friends, should you take those teachings as a raft and put them on your head and carry them with you everywhere? And the monks who were with him said, No, blessed one. And he said in such a way these teachings are to be used as a vehicle to take you to that shore of freedom but not to be clung to or carried in an unwise way. Then the Buddha sat to rest by himself under a great tree in the forest meditating for a time and all of a sudden there appeared one of the characters in these mythological stories or dramas of the Buddha named Mara. Mara in the Hindu mythology is the name for the god of evil, the, the one who represents all of the um, unskillful and painful forces in the world. So Mara periodically visits the Buddha in the course of the texts and each time tries to tempt the Buddha or, or in some way um, get the best of the Buddha and the Buddha says, is that you Mara? That's generally his reply. And Mara then lowers his head and he says, oh, the Blessed One knows me, he sees me, and he kind of slinks off, foiled again, like in those cartoons or something like that, right? This time Mara visits and says to the Buddha, it is now time, may the Blessed One take final nirvana and leave this body. Because in the past, the Buddha had said to Mara, who said, you've taught enough, I will not finish my teaching until there are a great order of monks and nuns and elders and lay teachers and lay people and practitioners who have realized virtue and integrity, who have realized inner tranquility, who have developed the factors of enlightenment and come to the liberation that is possible for this human heart. And only when there is a full community of those who have practiced and realized and can teach this to others, will I be ready for nirvana? And Mara said, well, you have completed this, have you not? And the Buddha said, yes, Mara, I see you, and you need not worry. In fact, not long, in but several months ahead, the Buddha will end this mortal life, will leave this form of physical life. Now, why do you think it is that Mara keeps coming back to visit the Buddha after his enlightenment anybody got any ideas? yes? possibly to test him yes? any other ideas? what do you think? because he exists exists, someone says (laughs) in fact I saw him this morning myself (laughs) that's why Mara comes Because it's the nature of this world with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows with birth and death and light and dark that there are Buddhas and there are Maras. It's the way of things. Has anybody noticed? (laughs) And so it's part of the plot. And the Buddhist teaching has this included. Even for the teachers, one must recognize and pay respects to Mara. And so the moment the Buddha replied, you need not worry In but a few months, the Buddha will take his final nirvana. All of a sudden, there was an enormous earthquake, a terrible, hair-raising earthquake, and thunder from the sky that shook the skies as the earth shook. And Ananda, the attendant to the Buddha, came running and said, did you feel this, this great and enormous earthquake? And the Buddha said, I did. What caused such an earthquake, said the Buddha's attendant Ananda, And the Buddha said, well, there are different causes for earthquakes. There are natural causes. But in the life of a Buddha, there are eight other causes for such earthquakes beside the movement of the element of earth and water. That's the first cause, which we know locally here. That is when a Buddha is conceived and when a Buddha is born and when the Buddha is enlightened and when the Buddha first gives the teachings, the turning of the wheel of the law and when the first practitioners renounce the world and when the Buddha renounces his own life force and announces his death and when the Buddha dies all of these are the source of great earthquakes now why would this image of earthquake be there what do you think if you listen to this what, what meaning might it have any ideas please an opening, an opening. thank you anything else It feels like a moment of great change. It is the shaking of the foundations, the movement from the small sense of self to this great enlightenment, or the beginning of the teachings, or the death of one who has lived in an impeccable way, or all momentous events that somehow shake the ground that we know. It's really an image for that which uh, breaks up the way that we've held the world and allows a new way to be seen. So then Ananda begins to weep and beg and say, Many times, Buddha, you've said you could live for a long, long time. Why must you die so soon? Won't you please live for longer? And the Buddha looks back at Ananda and says, Ananda... Many times I also gave you hints that the Buddha could live a long time. In the black snake pool and in Jivaka's mango grove, I told you that a Buddha could live for a long time if he were asked to do so. And in Rajgir at the deer park and in the cool wood at Tapoda, I told you that the life of a Buddha could last many, many years if he was asked to do so. But you never asked me. I gave many broad hints and now it is too late. And yours is the fault, Ananda. Talk about guilt trips. Imagine. Yours is the fault. Yours is the failure. Now this is very interesting, isn't it? Why should this be in this story? Again, let's look at this for what its meaning would be in our own life and understanding. Because in fact... Um, Ananda was beloved by the Buddha and later in this very text he speaks just before he dies in praise of Ananda what care he had taken for 35 years what um, beauty and sensitivity he brought to the teachings the qualities of Ananda's voice that was pleasing and caring for those who would come to see the Buddha and those who would leave and guiding and teaching so there's a lot of praise for Ananda but why would he say this yours is the fault any ideas? Someone? Please. I was
1: thinking maybe something to do with uh, some kind of
0: awareness. Something to do with some kind of awareness. Thank you. Yes. He was trying to help Ananda see his attachment. He was trying to help Ananda see his attachment. Yes. Possibly another reason and a very important one. That this is the teaching that says that the relationship between those whom we learn from, teachers or guides in all kinds of fashions, and students, is not just one way. It's not just the Buddha's responsibility to say this is how it is going to be and this is how it should be, but rather it is a shared responsibility that not only the Buddha, but Ananda and the community around also have the responsibility to see what is good, to ask for, to bring forth that which is helpful for all of us. So then, after this point, um, Ananda takes, uh, asks these questions and has the, the answer. And then the Buddha says to Ananda, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. And in each of the scenes in this text, whether the minister comes and asks whether should we make war or those who he taught along the banks of the Ganges River or Sariputra who talks about the great walled city and the one gate in the eternal present that sees all arise and pass. Each time the Buddha is finished teaching or being with someone, he then says, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. That's kind of his parting line to people. Why would that be? Does this make sense to you? How would you understand this?
1: Because each of us has to be our own
0: teacher. Because each of us has to be our own teacher. That's a very beautiful pointing to this. That the Buddha is said to be the exemplar of compassion for everyone that comes But still, the teacher or guide or someone who loves you cannot do it for you. No one can get enlightened for you or awaken for you. No one can let go for you. No one can love for you. Only we can discover this capacity to love or let go or be free in ourselves. We can be reminded of it, inspired of it through the presence of another. But in the end, Now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. You must find it in yourself. So then they wander farther, and the question is asked to the Buddha, as it's heard throughout the community, that he will die. So who will be our guide when the Buddha is gone? And the Buddha sits with his followers, listening to this question, and then says... I will put no one else in charge of the Sangha or the community, but rather I would let the Dharma, the teachings, be your guide. Let the Dharma and the Vinaya, the the teachings and the laws that have been pointed out by the Buddha. He said you must be islands unto yourself. You must be a lamp, a light unto yourself, and let the truth which is before you be your teachers. And then he said, how should you do this? By contemplating or developing the capacity of mindfulness or awareness to know this very body, these feelings, this mind, and the nature of the world around you. And in this you must discover for yourself grasping and entanglement in the heart, and the possibility of release, of freedom and compassion. Let your own experience in the heart be your guide. And then the followers said, well, how can we know what are the true teachings to follow? And the Buddha said, there were four ways that one might know. One might hear, I have heard these teachings from the lips of the Buddha. Or the whole community speaks of these as the Buddha's teachings. Or a great circle of elders speaks of them. Or some master for whom you have respect speaks of them. Neither approve nor disapprove of those words. But listen to them in your heart and consider them. And only if whoever it is that's speaking offers words that conform to the essence of the Dharma that I have taught, that you have learned, the Dharma of respect and generosity, of letting go, of stilling the heart and finding freedom and compassion, if it corresponds to the essence, the foundations of mindfulness, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, then you can know it is the teachings of the Buddha. And if it doesn't, It is not my words. And then he goes further and sits with those around him and speaks about the beauty of those who live a life based on the purity of heart that's possible for human beings. If you live such a life with virtuous conduct or integrity that speaks truthfully and acts in ways that do not cause harm to others, if you quiet the heart and mind, and develop a wisdom that allows for freedom and compassion for every being that you touch. There will be beauty and honor, you will sleep easily, you will die peacefully. And without these things, no matter what you gain, there are the perils of loss of respect and reputation and wealth and sleep, and even of dying in confusion because one's heart is not clear or pure. So he looked around and said Take care of your own practice And your own heart Be a lamp unto yourself Then he wandered further Through the forest Periods of rest and practice The travel became more difficult as he was older. He said it was like an old cart that's strapped together with leather thongs and string to hold it so that it might travel a few miles further. Mm. Yet he said the heart of the Blessed One was at peace. And finally he came to a forest grove together with five hundred or a thousand monks and nuns They always use numbers like 500 and 1,000, which simply means a lot in the mythological language. And there he rested for some time. And after resting, he became aware of a visitor. It was the courtesan Ambapali was her name. And she came beautifully dressed in the finest silks and perfumes with a retinue of followers in the most beautiful gilded carriage which stopped at the edge of the woods and the grove and then followed therefore on foot taking off her shoes and sandals and approaching the Buddha and bowing and sitting down to one side. And when the courtesan Ambapali and her retinue had sat to one side, the Buddha instructed and roused and inspired and awakened teachings in her own heart the four foundations of mindfulness, the awareness of breath, of body, of heart, and mind, the discovery of contentment and freedom. And when Ambapali was instructed and roused and inspired and awakened by the teachings of the Buddha, she glowed with great joy. And then she invited the Buddha and the company of his followers to her pleasure grove in the town nearby for a meal in the morning. And the Buddha agreed. Ambapali and her followers left. And then shortly afterward there was a great sound in the woods as a whole other company of nobles, the nobles of this area, the nobles of the Lichavis came. And the nobles came in royal carts with horses and elephants and banners wearing makeup and dressed in blue and red and yellow and white silks. And again they came and left their weapons at the edge of the forest and their carts and walked respectfully to the Buddha and sat to one side and bowed. And the Buddha instructed and roused and inspired and awakened them in the possibilities of the heart. And when they were finished, they said, Would the blessed would come tomorrow and take a meal with us in the palace of the Lichavis. Buddha said, no, I have already accepted a meal for tomorrow. And then they whispered to themselves, it must have been the courtesan Ambapali. And they went running after her. And they racing after her, they offered her a hundred thousand gold pieces for the honor of that meal with the Buddha. And she said, not if you gave me all the gold in the whole community would I trade this meal with the Buddha, not for a kingdom of gold. And then they began to say bad things about her, calling her a mango woman and other such slang terms for courtesans. And they ran back to the Buddha and said, why is it that you have given this courtesan, this mango woman, the honor of a meal and we noble ones do not get? And he said, my dear friends, because she asked me first.
1: <laughs>
0: now here's a question for you. Why does the courtesan come into this story, into this myth? Can't hear. Non-judgmental. Non-judgmental. Anyone else? Please. Yes, there's, there's certainly a parallel to the teachings of Jesus and the eye of a needle here. but The eye of the needle, by the way, was an ancient name for a tiny little gate in the wall in Jerusalem that a person could walk through, but you couldn't put your camel through. It really speaks to the question of who can practice and what are the values of these teachings, the values of the heart. And the Buddha said it in many ways through all the years of his teachings this important truth and we need to hear it especially because we still live in a society that is fundamentally racist at its core and because of that has enormous suffering the Buddha said that not by race or by caste or by class by whatever measure outwardly one would make does one become a noble being but one is noble by virtue of their heart All were invited to join the order of monks and nuns, whether you were an outcast or a butcher or the son or daughter of a king or queen or prince or princess, and you were all taken in and spoken to and taught with the same respect. O nobly born, many of the texts begin, you who are the son or daughter of the Buddha. Because in this teaching, courtesan or whoever it is, it is seen that every being has this Buddha nature, this potential for awakening. It is our true nature. And so this in the story is a reminder of that nobility of every being that walks and breathes. So then the story goes on and talks about the last meal. The the blacksmith offers the last meal at Pava in the mango forest. And all this food is presented to the Buddha the best hard and soft foods it describes, and to his retinue of followers. He invites the Buddha to a meal, and the Buddha comes. And the Buddha takes the last meal, and he makes this one special offering of a dish to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, you give that to me alone, and give the rest of the food to my followers, knowing, as he does, that there's something tainted about this dish. And then he eats this dish which is offered. They do their chanting at the end of the meal to offer their blessings and then go off. And immediately the Buddha is struck by great winds and pains in his stomach and intestines and throughout his body and fevers. And it's known that the Buddha is becoming very, very sick. And at this point then, the Buddha sends a message back to the blacksmith who offered this meal. He says, Ananda... I'm sure he will have heard that the Buddha has taken great, uh, gravely ill after this meal and he will be concerned and worried and frightened. So go back to him and give him this message that there are two meals which have the most benefit and blessings of all the meals given to the Buddha. The most merit and power and benefit, that meal which is given right before his enlightenment, the milk rice that was offered. And that meal that is the last that he will take. Now, why would the Buddha send Ananda back to speak with the blacksmith? What did you say? So, so So that he wouldn't panic someone else? I'd feel pretty bad if I served tainted food to the Buddha. There is that, yes. And with it, there is another deep teaching which has to do with the nature of karma. That what matters most fundamentally in karma is motivation itself. Motivation is the key. So when we spoke of karma some weeks ago in that particular teaching. Remember I used the example of the knife, that someone can put a a sharp knife in their hand and use it to cut open a human body and do that and have the person die so that a killer can do that. Take a knife and stab a person and open their body and they will die and they make a certain kind of karma. And another person can take a knife a sharp knife, and cut open a person's body and have the same result that they die. Only this time it might be a surgeon who is working on someone and takes that knife and cuts open the body and they bleed and and they die. That's the end of the, the result of the operation being unsuccessful. So it's the knife cutting open the body, the person dying. The activity is parallel, but the consequence is entirely different because the intention in that one is to kill or murder another human being and the other as best as one can is to bring healing so the essence of karma is this motivation or intention of the heart and here then the buddha is reminding the smith that it was not the consequences of the food he made the best food that he could but that this was the time for this to happen and to know that the that the buddha is honoring his, the beauty of his intentions So then they sat down in a forest glade for some time and Pukusa, a wandering ascetic, came by and sat with the Buddha. The Buddha was sitting there in meditation and shortly before Pukusa spoke with the Buddha a huge train of carts loaded with merchandise 500 carts crossed the stream nearby. And then the Buddha opened his eyes after the carts had passed and said, fetch me some water, please. And Pakusa said, fetch you water. The carts just crossed. It's going to be muddy. There's nothing worth drinking. And the Buddha said, fetch me water, please. Pakusa said, it's not any good. And he said for the third time, Pakusa, fetch me some water. So he went and fetched water. And it was absolutely clear. And Pukusa said, this is magic. You have changed the water from muddiness to clarity. And the Buddha looked at Pakusa and said, it is not only the water that changes from muddiness to clarity, but the heart that can change in the same way. There is the image of the wish-fulfilling gem, this stone like alum, if you ever studied chemistry, um, which you put in water that has all these... Um, um, floating particles, and you place a bit of alum in the water and it all settles to the bottom and clarifies. And the Buddha said, thus in the teachings of the Dharma, in the mindfulness and presence we can bring to the moment, the heart settles and the mind becomes clear. So Pukusa was rather inspired by this. Um, And the Buddha said, this is nothing. He said, it's possible for the Buddhist to sit as he did some year before and a huge storm to happen lightning and thunder to burn the tree that the Buddha sits under and the Buddha was completely untouched now how could this be? and uh, Pukusa didn't understand but what Pukusa realized and maybe I ask you why is this image of the Buddha sitting here and the lightning burning the tree and here's the Buddha untouched by it why would that be in there? Anyone? Please? Without the teachings of, with the teachings
1: of uh, purity of the heart, when you've purified your heart the, um, the, uh, from greed and
0: aversion, then the things that happen around you don't affect you. Mm-hmm. When the heart is purified from greed and aversion, then the things around you don't touch the heart or they don't affect you. They're received in some other way And it is this kind of image that appears again and again. And here's the Buddha ready to die, moving beyond this form of this life and teaching that the forms of the life change, but this knowing, this purity of knowing, we can rest in this place. And having roused and inspired... Uh, Pukusa Pukusa said it's as if you set up what had been knocked down or pointed the way to one who was lost or brought a lamp into the darkness so that all with eyes could see he had such great faith that he took out of his bag two golden robes and gave them to the Buddha and the Buddha put the golden robes on this beautiful golden cloth and as he did, Ananda remarked, the robes are beautiful, but the skin of the Buddha is glowing more golden than the robes themselves. Why is this? Any ideas? Somebody else. Why is the Buddha go- glowing golden? What do you think? Purity. Purity. skin of the Buddha, maybe the Buddha has a greater value than the golden robes. The Buddha has a greater value than the gold of the robes. Gold has been the symbol of royalty whether it's Aztec and Mayan or African or Asian for a long time because it's precious and malleable and because it's untarnished, that it doesn't combine, hardly combines with any other elements. It remains pure and unalterable. And it has a, the golden skin of the Buddha, as you said, has a greater value than the gold of the robes. So then he became very sick, great pains, a severe bloody illness. And he lay down in the lion's pose on one side between two sal trees at this point. And Ananda was there, and the trees all bloomed out of season. It said, they filled with flowers. And he said, Ananda, step aside, will you please? And Ananda said, I will, blessed one. He said, please step aside. Ananda said, why is this? And the Buddha said, that's because the Devas and the Brahmas, the angels of the 10,000 world systems, are all here to attend to the death of the blessed one. And the angels of purity and the angels of kindness and the angels of radiance and the angels of peace and the angels of goodness, they've all appeared. There's all these wonderful names for angels, all the different categories and classes of angels. Now why are the angels in this picture? And why are the trees in bloom? Anybody? Please. Celebrate the, to this next life. Celebrate the transition. Thank you. Yes? Say,
1: uh, something like a resonance.
0: A resonance? Of, of no possibilities for. A resonance of possibilities. There is a beauty to a beautiful life well lived, and there's also a beauty to a death that's done well, isn't there? Anything that's done with integrity and impeccability has a kind of beauty, and the angels, which are the symbol of beauty or harmony, or that which is um, the possibility of radiance in our own being, are here surrounding the Buddha. But then Ananda complains to the Buddha, and he says, Don't die here, Oh, blessed one. Please don't die here. Go back to Kosala or to Benares, to one of the, you know, m- most wonderful cities of India. They're not far away. Why are you dying here in this miserable backwater town, this daub and waddle village, it says in the text. You remember that phrase from your anthropology classes. You know what daub and waddle means? When they make their houses out of mud and, and, and um, cow manure, right? That's what the... Please, now, um, please, please, don't die in this miserable backwater, Daube and Waddle. You're, you're a great being. And the Buddha raises his head up and looks at Ananda. And he says, do not call this a miserable backwater. For once upon a time, again we get this mythological language, a long time ago, on this very spot, there was a king named King Mahasudasana, who was a wheel turning monarch. And he had a, a palace of enormous magnitude on this very spot. He was worldwide known as a leader. And in this spot from the palace, there spread out in each direction to the north and the south and the east and the west great roads, always filled with the prosperity of the kingdom never free of the sounds of elephants and carriages and gongs and commerce and cattle and cymbals and joys. And the joys were here because this kingdom was a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom ruled with justice. And so I will die in this place. Now, why do we have this scene of the Buddha dying in a daub and waddle village out in the sticks of India and this dialogue with Ananda? What teachings might there be for us in this? Anyone, please. Impermanence. First, the teachings of impermanence, that you don't get to choose the place you're going to die, do you? In fact, I remember when I was practicing as a monk and we would go to the... Um, autopsies as part of our practice of birth and death and sit in the charnel grounds and going to the hospital, um, to the uh, morgue where they were doing autopsies and there would be people in every stage of life who had died as will happen to us all. And there was a woman lying there and her fingernails were all beautifully painted. Probably done that morning. It didn't occur to her that it was the last time she was going to paint her fingernails. It doesn't occur to us in that way. So that death will come, we don't know when. What we know is that we have this moment and this day to live wisely. Why else? Why is it this Dobbin Waddle village? Someone else who hasn't spoken. Please. Uh,
1: because of the, uh, the common nature, the universal nature.
0: The universal nature, the common nature. Yes. Perhaps we could also understand it to amplify it in this way that any place we pick on this earth is a holy place. Any place where there is justice and integrity and righteousness and uh, compassion is the kingdom that we seek, the kingdom of righteousness. It's not found in the middle of the greatest city or in the middle of the most beautiful work of art. But as T.S. Eliot spoke of, the still point of the turning world any place where we come to rest in our hearts and live from that knowing of freedom and compassion and integrity becomes the center of the world where all the roads cross, the kingdom of righteousness. Then there's one last visitor who comes to see the Buddha, Subhada, the monk, a wanderer. And the Buddha's already lying there and quite ill, And Ananda says, no, no, the Buddha's about to die, you can't see him. But the Buddha overhears it and says, Ananda, let him in. And he gives him the last of the teachings. And the Buddha says, to all who have come to me, I have offered the teachings of freedom open-handedly, holding nothing back. I have shown the way. And then he asks, does anyone have any last doubts about the way in this august company around him? And no one raises their hand like you haven't very much tonight. Yes? That's because you all understand, I realize. Yes, I honor you that. So then the Buddha says, then you must be of good resolve, all of you nobly born, all of you who are the son and daughter of the Buddha. For if you practice wisely, the earth will never be free of enlightened beings. Remember, my friends. All created things are impermanent. All that is born will die and pass away. Be a light, be a lamp unto yourself. Find the freedom of heart that is possible for you and every being. And then he closed his eyes and went into the highest states of purity of consciousness and then released the body. And as he did so, after he spoke, it said that the tens of thousands of devas and angels wept, and the skies rained flowers, and the earth shook with an earthquake and thunder. And many who were sitting around him, having heard his last teachings, um, were not overcome, who had, who had not overcome their clinging and their grasping, began to weep. And cry and tear their hair and and throw themselves on the earth, monks and nuns alike. Some of them didn't weep. And some of the enlightened ones and the angels began to grumble and complain of those who were weeping. And said, don't you know that all things are impermanent? Didn't he just tell you that? <laughs> So here's this scene. There's all this grief and people pulling their hair and throwing themselves down and weeping. Those who had just roused and inspired and instructed and had no more questions. Why do they have this as the last scene? And then those who are, who are sitting there in peace and then begin to grumble a little at the, and complain about those who are not. Why do they have this? What do you think? Yes? It shows how hard it is to get the lesson. Well spoken, yes. And it is a holding of the opposites, that there is this universal truth that all things that arise will pass away. And yet at the same time, there is also this personal reality of our own lives. So that when the great Tibetan master Marpa, who taught that all things are appearances, like an illusion that arise and pass when his son died he began to weep and those around him said but, but I thought you said it's all an illusion and he said yes and the death of a child is the greatest of all these illusions and he continued to weep so this really speaks to the need for us to hold these opposites, that which is personal and immediate, and to have compassion for that and the grief that we share in this world. And at the same time, to know the freedom of the heart that's possible even in the midst of those circumstances. And so a funeral was held according to uh, the Buddha's teachings. He was asked before he died, what should we do with your remains? And the Buddha said, the remains of a Buddha are to be treated like those of a great and wheel-turning monarch or king, wrapped in five hundred layers of soft cotton and linen, and put in a great iron pot with perfume, surrounded by sandalwood in the finest woods. And so he was placed in this way, and they decided to light the funeral pyre, but it wouldn't light. And that's because some miles down the road came Mahakasapa with a company of 500 monks who wanted to pay their respects to the Blessed One first. And so the body would not ignite until Mahakasapa arrived and placed his head at the feet of the Buddha. And there, uh, around his body, surrounded by sandalwood, the monks circled with their shoulders bare, led by Mahakasapa. And in that moment the fire ignited itself and the air was filled with perfume and again flowers rained down on the earth and a huge pyre arose to the heavens and when it stopped, there was nothing left but the finest of ashes. And the stupa, a great round like round like the earth, a great um, sacred monument was built at these crossroads in Kusinara to remind us of the passing away of the Blessed One and it is there to this day in India. It looks like these big peace pagodas that they also build throughout Japan. In fact, there was one built near our center in Massachusetts in the, in the uh, hills outside of Amherst. You're driving along the back roads of Massachusetts in the woods and all of a sudden you go around a turn and there on the top of one of the small mountains there is this huge, hundred foot high, enormous dome of a peace pagoda. It was built by these monks from Japan who came and someone gave them some land and they said, this would be a spot to remind people of peace. We will build it here. And as soon as the monks settled there, people started to come and offer bricks and labor and paint. And two or three years later, this enormous pagoda was finished with the monks just standing there and building it. The pagodas or the stupas are really reminders to us in a symbolic outer form of the possibility of peace. Peace. I hope we build a stupa or a pagoda here at some time. would like us to do a peace pagoda. Um, But if you wish to know if this is just a fable or if it's really true, I invite you to go to India, to Kusinara, in this very time and see the great stupa that is there. So I tell this story as a way to honor and respect and praise the awakened one, the Buddha. But more than that, to respect and honor and celebrate and praise the awakened one that sits here in every being in this room. That it is you who give these teachings. It is you who understand the possibility of freedom. It is you who understand the great heart of a Buddha, the great compassion of a Buddha. And so to you, sons and daughters of the Buddha, this is a reminder that If we long for justice, for beauty, for compassion, it is here to be found if we follow the teachings of virtue and integrity, of quieting our hearts and living from this place of mindfulness and wisdom. It is always here. The kingdom of righteousness and the great heart of compassion can be found in any moment. And if we practice rightly, mindfully, wisely, then the earth will not be free of awakened beings. The Dharma said the Buddha is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And with this I end the twelve teachings of the Buddha. Let us sit. It is a wonderful thing to stop and center ourselves and listen with a mindful and kind attention to this very body and heart and mind, to remember this place of awakening that is here in us to be found in any moment, that is here in all moments, and all beings. And let us end with a simple chant. Um, One of the words in Sanskrit or Pali that conveys the sense of respect, spoke of nobly born, is the word namo, which is the root of the greeting in India, namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. When you meet someone, you say namaste. So I'd like us to chant this word namo nine times before we go. And in it you can think of that which you would bow to, what is beautiful in yourself and beautiful in those around you, that which you respect or would pay your respects to. Na mo
2: Na Na